podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. have to live in places where things grow in abundance. Places where mature trees compete for sunlight, and berries and ferns and moss and weird reedy grasses grow. I'm positive it's the byproduct of growing up marooned in a flat expanse of farmland. I'm not sure which came first, my fear of wide open spaces or my childhood surrounded by too much sky, but... I can barely even visit towns that don't have trees and aren't packed to bursting with green, let alone live in one. And for that reason, the berry fields and orchards surrounding my current home are one of the highlights of every summer and fall. And I particularly enjoy the humid chaos of the local blueberry farm in late July and early August. My first few visits were made in a desperate attempt to occupy an hour in this string of endless hours that make up a day when you're babysitting very young children. I love my nephews to the point of obsession, but I don't miss the days when they were pure kinetic energy and tantrums, and much prefer them as children with conversational skills and maturing interests. When they were small, their overtired mother and I would drag them to the blueberry patch to try to make some memories, but never made it more than 20 or so minutes before the boys were sticky, screaming, overheated messes, and so I'd have to prematurely pull myself away from the hypnotic process of coaxing clumps of perfectly ripe berries into the bucket around my neck. Now that they're older and have started to develop the same hyperfixations as their dear old auntie, the boys and I can spend close to two hours foraging deeper into the patch to find the thickest clusters and the ripest berries. And I avoid the young families and their screaming broods for fear they'll trigger my PTSD from the handful of weekends I spent with my nephews at that age. I, I know how ridiculous that sounds, but some of us simply weren't built for parenthood or anything adjacent. This year, I realized that my nephews would be visiting a little too late for our annual berry picking adventure. So I decided to take a solo trip to gather a few pounds to make a blueberry cobbler when my college friend visited over the weekend. I got to the patch as soon as it opened to avoid the oppressive mid-afternoon heat and wasn't surprised to find a dozen tourists lined up that had the same idea. Luckily, the farm stretches for a couple of acres, so I bypassed the first several rows to find the perfect plot to disappear into. And on the way, I passed a sign that I'd never noticed before. The more you snack, the more you steal. A couple fine, but not a meal. He is watching. No one can turn a sweet cautionary tale into a terrifying moral warning like a Midwesterner can. And I giggled at the rhyme, then took a right into the dense bushes once I felt confident I'd found a section I would be alone in. Calling the plants bushes doesn't paint an accurate picture. 
as they stretch to six or seven feet high and are so wide that I can barely reach the middle of most of them, even if I stretch. So they feel more like short, fat trees. As soon as you enter the rose, the rest of the world disappears. And I'm always overcome with the giddy motivation of a treasure hunter, driven deeper into the clingy overgrowth by the need to find fatter clumps that are so ripe they barely require any pressure to fall free from the branch. I took the first few seconds to survey my options, then chose the bush with berries that had matured to the size of dimes. I popped a few in my mouth to confirm that they were as ripe and sweet as they appeared to be, and they were more delicious than any I'd ever tasted. I cupped my hand around another bunch, and they came loose so quickly I lost almost half of them to the blue-stained lawn below. I salvaged a few to snack on, then fell into the rhythm of reaching and removing and collecting and snacking as I slowly shifted from branch to branch, and then moved on to the next plant once I was satisfied I'd gotten the best fruit from the previous. A slight breeze snuck through the overlapping branches, and I was hypnotized into perfect contentment by the repetition of the gathering and my steady enjoyment of the fruit. My nephews and I would joke that we had berry madness when it was time to leave, and we couldn't pull ourselves away. There were always more berries beckoning to be picked, and I was so relaxed in knowing that childhood needs wouldn't drag me away from the farm, and I could stay and pick and snack for as long as I wanted. And then I found the boy. I had been picking for close to 40 minutes and was so deep into the field that I hadn't seen or heard anyone else for at least 20. So when I heard the first whimper, I jumped a little and reflexively squeezed the berries I was about to transfer to my bucket. I flicked the ruined fruit onto the ground and did my best to clean the juice from my palms as I inched a little closer in the direction of the sound and strained to listen for a parent or adult nearby. I knew from experience how quickly a little one can disappear into the patch and shuddered at the memory of the time we lost my youngest nephew in the rose for three or four minutes. My sister was a screaming wreck by the time we found him, contentedly munching on a bucket of blueberries that someone had abandoned, and we'd remained on high alert during every trip since. After two or three seconds, I heard the cries again. Weak and panicked and bubbling with hopelessness. They were coming from a row that ran parallel to the one I was in, so I cut through the bushes next to me, then two or three after that until I spotted the back of a filthy blue t-shirt just beyond one of the plants. I pushed some leaves out of the way to check for any sign of an adult, but it was just the boy. I studied him for a moment as he sat, his hands smacking the pile of blue goo surrounding him in the dirt, and his thin, exposed limbs were as soiled as his shirt. Hey, kiddo! I called softly, and he didn't seem to register my voice. He smacked the ground almost violently and continued to cry and cackle softly, but didn't turn to see who I was. It's okay, sweetie, I continued as I pushed past the bushes that separated us. Where's your mommy, little one? He didn't move at all as I closed the space between us. So I raised my voice just slightly 
and a tiny prickle of fear creeped up my neck as he came more fully into view. You okay, buddy? I asked, but he continued to face away from me, his back straight, limbs rigid and jerky. My anxiety swelled to a low-grade dread as I slowly rounded the side of the boy. I noticed long, raw red stripes down the skin on the side of his arm closest to me, and I couldn't help but gasp as I saw the front of him for the first time. His blue eyes were far too wide in the middle of his face, and his stare was agonized and spectral, carrying a depth of experience only someone returning from outer space or being rescued after several days in a cave or at sea can convey. He stared at everything and nothing, and the lower half of his face was streaked with snot and a stream of purple liquid that extended down his neck and the front of his shirt. His other arm bore the same red streaks, as did his cheeks, and I watched in horror as his mouth closed slightly, then opened to release another croaking, inhuman whine as more purple saliva rolled onto his chin. He smacked the ground three more times, then brought both hands to his cheeks. His tiny fingers curled toward his palms, and he he started rubbing his little fists up and down the sides of his ragged face. I realized with even more alarm that he was attempting to self-soothe, and I spun around to find the person responsible for the stricken child, but we were alone in the rows. There was no sign of anyone anywhere near us. I shuddered to think about how long the kid would have had to be alone in the patch to look as shattered as he did. But surely there was no way he would have been left unattended for more than a few minutes. He looked like he'd been in there for days. But there was no way his cries could go unheard for that long. As big as the farm was, the panicked wails of a toddler could easily be heard from even the farthest corner. And so he seemed impossible to me. So broken and traumatized and alone. He still didn't register my presence as I crept toward him, so I hunched low to minimize my threat and whispered calming words to try to make some sort of connection. He just soothed and squeaked as purple spit bubbles and lines of saliva slipped past his lips under his unseeing eyes. Once I was close enough to touch him, I dropped onto my haunches and tried to make eye contact. But he continued to stare into the distance beyond my head. I took a deep breath and tried one last time to ask him his name and where his parents were before I slowly reached out my hand and laid it on his grime-streaked leg. The second my hand made contact with his skin, he let out a scream so painful and primal I couldn't help but scream in return. The boy bucked under my touch and started to rip at his face with fingernails and then turned them on me when I grabbed at his wrists to stop him. I tried to hold on to him, but his body thrashed so viciously and he hissed 
and screamed so ferociously that I had to let him go for fear of breaking his frail wrists. The second he was free, he scrambled between the nearest bushes with the speed of a hunted animal and was gone. I squeezed through the space he disappeared through to try to find him, but only found the vibrating leaves of the plants he'd escaped through. Help! I instinctively called out as I spun toward the front of the farm and walked as quickly as I could through the branches crisscrossing the path. Help! There's, there's a lost kid out here! The only response was the steady hum of the high summer cicadas and the sound of my moist breath as I labored to get out of the patch and back to the main house where someone could help me find the kid. His ghastly face propelled me forward as fast as my legs and the brambles would allow and I pushed the image from my mind and replaced it with the hope that whatever had happened to him while he'd been lost was reversible because the alternative was too horrible to entertain. After several seconds, I paused as it dawned on me that I should have been very near the edge of the patch, if not completely out of it by then. But the bushes continued to stretch in front of me as far as I could see. I spun in the opposite direction to see if maybe I'd gotten turned around and strained on my tiptoes to try to get a better sense of which way was out, but I wasn't tall enough to get a good vantage point. I I knew that even if I'd headed in the wrong direction, I should have been close to the edge by then. So I continued on in the direction I'd started and called for help several more times, but my pleas remained unanswered. When I still hadn't made it out of the patch after many more seconds, I reached for my phone that I always kept in my back pocket, but instead of the hard case against my fingertips, it was just my jeans and soft flesh. As I confirmed that the other pocket was also empty, I was struck with an image of my phone in my glove box just before I closed it, having made the last-minute decision to enjoy the patch phone-free. Shit! I shouted and took several dozen steps forward in irritation, but the foliage showed no signs of ending. Help! 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 I screamed several more times, each cry a little louder and more high-pitched than the last. But there was still nothing. No one shouting back to reassure me that they were coming, no footsteps or rustling greenery or families laughing in the distance. The longer I listened, the more dense the silence became, and even the calls of the cicadas seemed further away than they had been just a few minutes before. As the silence grew, so did the mid-morning heat, and I realized that I was probably just overheated and was misjudging the amount of time I'd been walking, so decided to set the timer on my watch for five minutes and made a plan to walk perpendicular to the rows until the time went off. I knew that there was no way it would take more than three minutes to get out of the patch in any direction, even from the middle or one extreme side to the other. But I set it for five, just to be sure. I made a quarter turn to face the plants, hunched down, then reached out my hands to carve a space for my body and began the tedious trek through the undergrowth. I clawed and clawed and pushed and pulled my way between the thin trunks of the bushes, 
until my watch tweeted three times to indicate that five minutes had expired. I threw myself to the ground out of total exhaustion and absolute frustration as I was still nowhere near the outside of the patch. My metal bucket toppled on my chest and hundreds of berries cascaded down my sides as I laid back in the dirt and stared up at the growing sun. My mother's words came back to me as I closed my eyes against the dangerous rays. If you ever get lost, stay where you are and someone will find you. I laughed out loud. Logically very aware that it's impossible for an adult woman to get lost in a blueberry patch in a residential area. But with no other option, I decided to heed her words and just stay still and let somebody find me. But my mom was wrong. I remained on the humid ground for the rest of the day, certain that at the very least farm workers would come through the field at the close of business to collect discarded buckets and debris and reset the picturesque scene for the next wave of weekend tourists. But no one ever came. The next day was Saturday and the farm was usually overflowing with visitors on weekends at peak season. But still, no one came. I should have heard children and their parents exchanging shouts and scoldings and the echoes of the pails as the first berries pinged off of their metal bottoms and the murmurs of new lovers and songs of birds and rumbles of cars and footfall and crunching gravel and all of the auditory signs of the world just beyond the patch. But there was nothing. There was just me and the occasional breeze, and the sun, and the rose, and the berries. I'd eat a few handfuls when my stomach started to protest, and I entertained the brief, grateful feeling that at least I'd been stranded among an endless supply of a superfood. But otherwise, my mind protested against the implausibility of my situation and the terrifying nature of the nothing. After a day or two, I decided to venture out again because I knew I'd go crazy if I didn't at least try to find a human or an exit. And so I slowly wandered down the line, always walking in the same direction. And I walked until it was too dark to see, but never found a break or space where there wasn't branch and bark and leaf and berry. I walked the line for a week and only stopped to sleep. And after seven days with no progress, I decided to treat myself and allow myself to wander. To appease my fracturing mind, I pretended I was an explorer or treasure hunter and ducked in and out of the bushes in all directions as if searching for an endangered species that only lived among dense clusters of blueberry bushes. I found the first object from the outside that week, a crushed and discarded Diet Dr. Pepper can. And the thrill I got when I saw it was greater than the feeling of meeting my first love or passing the bar exam on the first try. After weeks of so much of the same, the twisted wreck of silver and maroon was breathtaking. I stashed my treasure in the bucket that I continued to carry and went back to my wandering with renewed purpose and hope that I wasn't totally alone in the patch. 
or the world beyond, for that matter. And then I found the body. I'd completely lost track of time by then, but if I had to guess, I'd say I'd been wandering for a week or two since I'd found the can, and had started to lose hope that I'd encounter any new signs of the outside. It was just about to get too dark to see, and as I pushed through two bushes I could have sworn I'd pushed through twenty times before, my heart leapt as my eyes landed on the discarded shoe of an adult male. It was a white New Balance tennis shoe. The exact shoe that several of my uncles and most sensible middle school teachers had worn. And I was overwhelmed with nostalgic longing for the calm authority and stability of those men. They'd bored me to the brink of madness when I'd known them in the real world. But trapped in the endless and monstrous patch, I craved the comfort of their steadiness and dependability and was desperate for a life where the idea of saving and safety were still intact. I cradled the shoe for several minutes and savored the soft resistance of the foam-filled pleather against fingertips that had only felt sharp and grit for so many weeks. As the sun dropped too low to continue to study my new prize, I tucked it lovingly into my bucket beside the can and turned to find a spot to sleep for the night. I took a few steps toward a particularly thick plant, which offered the best protection from rainstorms and early morning sun, and tripped over something long and hard below me in the dark. I dropped my bucket as my arms wheeled to regain my balance, and my first instinct was to collect the can and the shoe as they flew out of view. But that urge was replaced with pure terror and revulsion as I lost my battle with gravity and landed face to face with the mostly decomposed head of a human man. I screamed and Crab walked away from the body as quickly as I could, ignoring the bushes along my escape route as they scraped at my bony back and slowed my retreat from the corpse, my only companion in the darkening patch. Once I was dozens of rows away from the body, I broke into violent, racking sobs as the fear of finding and then losing the body consumed me. Every cell in my body wanted to be as far away from the dead man as physically possible, but also craved his companionship in the absence of anything or anyone else. I had also lost the shoe and the can and so propped my body in the direction that I'd fled from so that I could remember which way to go in the morning, determined to retrace my steps to try to find my lost treasures. And the only semblance of a person I'd seen in well over a month. I spent the next three days trying to find the can and the shoe and the body. But they were lost in the unending green and blue and brown. I sobbed and screamed and searched But I was alone again in the patch. And if I hadn't found the book, I'm positive I wouldn't have survived much longer. Calling it a book is a bit of an overstatement, because it's actually a battered spiral notebook, bent in half long ways to be more easily carried or tucked into a back pocket. 
But it's a book in the sense that it tells the story of my imprisonment in the patch and is the text that I study day and night for any additional clues for how to get out of here. The author of the book didn't make it out of the patch alive, so it's a steep challenge. But now I know who built this prison. I'm determined to not let them win. I'd unknowingly chosen a sleeping spot in the dark that was right next to the book. And it was the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes in the morning. The deep red of its cover was so bright and unexpected that I thought I was still dreaming for several seconds. And it wasn't until I was actually holding the brittle pages that I realized I was awake and the new treasure was real. The book was written in the wobbly script that I recognized as the handwriting of a middle-aged Midwestern man. I'm not sure what exactly causes them all to write in the same unsteady manner, but all Midwestern men over the age of 45 seem to have the same lopsided, wiggly penmanship, regardless of their level of education or social status. The first several pages were a makeshift ledger of the various vendors and supplies required to run a U-Pick blueberry farm, so it was immediately apparent that the book had belonged to one of the owners. I flipped past a page full of phone numbers for the local equipment repair shops and found a loose leaflet stashed in the pocket of the manila divider included in that type of notebook. It was a trifold brochure that looked like it had been printed on a home computer, and on the cover there was an image of the silhouette of a person walking through a gate toward a magnificent burst of light with the words, the narrow gate below it. Inside, there were several stock images of a happy family having a meal together, a father counseling a son, and a woman sitting on her porch deep in thought while gazing off into a perfect sunset. The images of human faces instantly brought tears to my eyes, and I brushed them aside so I could read the words surrounding the photos. A lack of authority is breaking down our country on every level. Our foundational rules are clear, but modern ideas have clouded our judgment. Adherence to basic commandments is no longer a priority, and the cornerstones of America are being eroded as a result. The morals and ideologies that this country was founded on have been cast aside to make the mentally ill radicals more comfortable. And enough is enough. Join us in restoring authority and obedience so that we may once again focus on a righteous path toward our country's future. There was a blank space on the last page where someone had hand-stamped their name and contact information. The name was Devin Cochran, and I recognized the area code as a local one. He'd handwritten the date January 25th under his phone number, and someone had circled it. The next page contained what looked like a series of notes that had been jotted down during a meeting, and the initials DC were sprinkled throughout the page, so I assumed it had been a meeting with Devin Cochran. Some of the words were illegible, but I was able to make out most of the notations. One-year commitment. We keep ownership of farm. DC gate pays utilities. DC pay sign installation. Three-week setup. 
plants injected in spring, trial period, number of berries, example, more than 15 berries, 20, kids number higher, 30 berries, 40, less eat, less punished. On the next page, I found what looked like drafts of the sign I'd encountered on my way into the patch, the one that had warned me not to eat too many berries as I picked. Be sweet, don't eat. He is watching. Nine is fine, but ten puts you in the pen. He is watching. A greedy boy, our berries, his joy, his belly full, his life now null. He is watching. Null? I asked myself out loud. The rhymes were as awkward as they were strange, but their point was becoming clear as I read on in absolute disbelief. Was I trapped in the patch because I'd snacked on too many berries? The thought was so horrendous and absurd that I could barely entertain it. But the notes made it pretty clear. I was being punished for the transgression of eating too many blueberries without paying for them. And not just that, the more I ate them to stay alive, the longer I was going to be punished. The weight of the idea was so massive that I had to close the notebook and lay down to avoid passing out or having a panic attack that I couldn't escape from. My stomach growled as the mid-morning sun haloed the berries bobbing on the branches above me. And so I closed my eyes against the temptation and tried to think. But my thoughts were a manic jumble of disbelief and fury. If I had been trapped in the patch for the indiscretion of accidentally enjoying too many berries, which was truly the most insane and condescending thing I'd ever heard, then I needed to make a plan to get out. The man's note, plants injected in spring, suggested that there was something in the berries that I ate that had triggered my punishment. And less eat, less punished made me think that my time in the patch was based on the number of berries I'd stolen. But how would I know the ratio of stolen berries to time served? And how was I supposed to survive without the berries to eat? And had I already eaten too many to survive my term? And why was there a child in here? The memory of the wild and brutalized little boy rushed back with so much intensity, I jumped to my feet and my anger flooded out of me in a series of primal screams. I ripped at the bushes and myself out of the agony of realizing what they'd done to that child. And for what? Why? Would someone inflict so much cold and misguided self-righteousness on a child? How could they? As much as I mourned the life of that poor little boy, I was grateful for my rage as it came with enough adrenaline and motivation to learn as much as I could about my circumstances so that I could get out of my prison, find the people responsible, and stop them. I knew at that moment that as long as I was alive, I would be using every breath in service of finding them and destroying them 
and every atrocious, infectious idea they'd ever unleashed on this already tortured planet. I calmed down to avoid accidentally hurting myself, found a shaded spot between two plants and resumed my research. The next few pages were more outlines of the plan as it progressed, and I was able to piece together that the owners of the blueberry patch had been approached by the narrow gate group, whoever they were, to donate their business to the service of punishing people for their perceived offenses, no matter how small. The more I thought about it, the more it made sense that they would choose the blueberry farm as one of their sites, as blueberries are more of a luxury than a necessity, and tend to attract the rich liberals that visit from the city to cosplay the impoverished life of the rural locals. They buy hobby farms and shop for local produce from the hobby farms of other rich liberals, and throw elaborate fundraising events for the Humane Society, or for the restoration of historical sites that they deem worthy, but never for the underserved humans in the community who could really use the additional resources. And I say they, because I've lived here for 10 years, but when it comes down to it, I'm a lawyer who drives a mini convertible, lives in a house a block from the lake, and only has rich liberal friends from the city. And so I am not, and never will be, a true local. I go to their blueberry farms and hardware stores, and they fix my car, and we wave as we pass. But I will always carry the entitlement of all of the other well-intentioned people who feel like they're doing the rural poor a favor by discovering them. And so I am counted among the city folk and other outsiders who consume them without ever truly seeing them. But my God, the audacity of those fucking people. In that moment, I was literally physically trapped by them. But I had always been trapped by their unbalanced and unhinged beliefs. As a child, I'd been told that sin is only a sin if you act on it. But it turned out that one of my basic human needs, the need to be loved and love who I wanted to love, who I was physiologically hardwired to love, was considered a sin. And so I spent decades of my life starving myself of that need in service of avoiding eternal damnation. And here I was again, trapped in the impossibility of being required to sin to survive. And the glow of my rage grew to a white hot inside of me. And then I read the rest of the man's story. It's impossible to know, but I think that the body that I found was the man who wrote the notebook and that he was one of the owners of the farm and one of the engineers of my prison, which turned out to be his prison too. The pages of notes and records abruptly ended and were replaced by a few scrawled sentences that served as a sort of journal for the last weeks of the man's life. I read his words over and over until the day turned into night and I could no longer see. And even then I repeated them to myself as I lay in the dark, devastated, but motivated, and in mourning for the lives that had been sent through the narrow gate and lost. 
It seems that the boy was the turning point for the man. And condemning a toddler to the torture of indefinite solitude was too much for him. <laughs> Go figure. He wrote, called Devin about the boy, but he said it was too late to get him. Patricia says the children need to learn the most. The adults are too lost, but the children can be saved. But I don't know how. He's just a boy. Followed by, drove to Cincinnati for the gate meeting. Glad to restore sanity to my country. It's my duty, but this is so big. It's changing, maybe not good. And his final passage was a hastily written list of unresolved thoughts. Nano? Glitch? Patricia knows. Boy. Boy was written frantically in all caps and underlined so many times it seemed he only stopped because he'd reached the bottom of the page. I meditated on the descending stack of lines and the fear and desperation hiding in the spaces between them. Did the man's wife put him in here? Was he trying to stop them? Did he stop them? If so, how did I end up in here? Where was everyone else? Surely I wasn't the only patron of the patch who had overindulged since the narrow gate showed up. And where the fuck was I exactly? I had only seen two other presumably punished people in the weeks since I'd gotten trapped. So where was everyone else? At the end of the second day of obsessively studying the notes, I drifted into a fitful sleep as I turned the questions over and over in my head. And when I woke up, I made a mental list of everything I knew for sure. Which wasn't much. I was being punished for eating too many blueberries. The more I ate, the longer I'd be trapped. A group called Narrowgate was responsible for my prison. The Narrowgate had convinced the owners to let them use their blueberry patch to punish people who stole their berries. The husband was having second thoughts about the plan. Was he going to sabotage it? Did his wife put him in the patch to get him out of the way? I shuddered as I realized that the man had known all of the rules of the patch, and still hadn't made it out alive. And so I'd need to be smart if I was going to survive and find a way out. I made a simple plan based on what I knew, and the first step was to start digging. The one thing I knew for sure was that I couldn't eat the berries, so I needed to dig for any signs of protein. Bugs or worms or small rodents that could keep me alive long enough to leave. I'd also need to find my bucket, or another can to collect water in. But there were enough short summer rainstorms that year that I knew I'd get enough water to stay alive for the next couple of weeks, even if it meant laying on my back and collecting it straight into my mouth. And I'd need to study. I decided to dedicate several hours a day to trying to find the man to see if he carried any more answers. And while I searched, I'd reread his notes on repeat until something new called out to me and gave me some fresh direction to follow. And so I started my new routine of digging and hunting and studying and collecting water whenever I could. It's almost been two weeks and so little has happened since I found the notebook that last night I thought I might not make it until the morning because I'm so weak and depleted. 
But today, I found something that changes everything. And so a tiny glimmer of hope has been ignited. And I'm going to follow it despite my growing desire to be done. There are no bugs in here. No worms or grubs or beetles or anything tiny and wriggling and made of essential protein to keep my mind and body intact. I've been able to catch enough rainwater to stay alive, but just barely. I've been forced to eat some berries, but just enough to prolong living. And three days ago, I noticed that they're starting to shift into their shriveling end-of-season forms, so it won't be an option much longer. I'm mostly just sleeping and forcing myself to read the notebook twice a day. But without anything to fuel my mind and connect my thoughts to each other, it's becoming more and more futile. Until today. When I woke up, my eyes and mouth were as dry as the dirt that had been my bed for too many weeks to count. And I thought I was dead for long enough to feel true disappointment when I realized I wasn't. I forced my body upright enough to study the notebook and promised myself I could go back to sleep after I'd read the notes all the way through, as had become my morning routine. I dragged my eyes down the rows of vendors and their corresponding contact information, as I had hundreds of times before. Then across the meeting notes and broken poems, and then forced myself to retrieve the pamphlet from the manila pocket with my now shaking hand. I pulled it open, laid it on my lap to read, then folded the pages back, one, two, toward the middle. But as I tried to tuck it back, the pamphlet fluttered from my fingers and landed face down on the ground beside me. I may have glanced at the back of the brochure when I'd first found it, but the only thing on the page was a typed address, so my brain had registered it as unimportant, despite my thorough excavation of every other detail in the book and so I hadn't revisited it since. I started to laugh as the address came into focus, and I wanted to scream or slap myself for not noticing the city before. As it was a city I was intimately familiar with, having lived there for five years, not to mention being the birthplace of my law career. Palo Alto, California. One of the reasons I became a lawyer is because I have a real talent for recognizing patterns and so can make massive webs of connections between seemingly unrelated topics almost instantaneously, which is an invaluable skill in researching or presenting a case in a courtroom. I studied business law at Berkeley and then took a job as an associate in Palo Alto where I compiled research for the various tech startups and tech behemoths that were our clients. It hadn't taken long for me to get overwhelmed with the pace of supporting an industry that must move outward and upward at the maximum possible speed to build the worlds and invent the future for those of us lucky and unlucky enough to be born at the advent of the internet and everything that would come after. So when my uncle reached out to me to express an interest in turning over his small local law practice so he could retire, I moved home and settled in and never looked back. I never looked back, that is, until the address on the leaflet woke me from my near-death daze 
and reminded me of the last client I'd worked for before leaving the Bay Area. The client that had spooked me enough to jump ship and run home to the safe confines of the rural Midwest, where people low-grade hated me for things I had no real control over, but where I could pretend that rich and powerful men weren't making decisions that would irrevocably change my future, as nerd after nerd had brilliant but world-altering thoughts in various think tanks by the sea. I couldn't remember the name of the company, but it had been the first time I'd heard of nanotechnology, and the emerging science had scared the shit out of me. The idea that scientists could manipulate various types of matter on such a small scale was thrilling in its potential life-saving applications and terrifying in its potential seen and unforeseen side effects. Not to mention the various ways the technology could be weaponized. I sat up fully, whipped forward a couple of pages in the notebook until I found the man's last passage, and there it was, right at the top, the word nano with a question mark. Was the narrow gate a nanotech company masquerading as a religious organization? Were they using the recent wave of religious extremism to test some new tech? Or were they religious extremists with access to nanotechnology? Was it government-sanctioned? Or maybe the narrow gate was the government? Were they rolling out a new technology to control and imprison us and justify it through an archaic tightening of our laws? And where was I... Oh my god. I breathed out loud as an unbearable thought entered my mind. What if I wasn't physically in the blueberry patch at all? What if whatever was in the berries was a nanotechnology that was altering my brain and causing me to hallucinate everything that was happening to me? What if I was in some prison in Silicon Valley being studied as a as I pantomimed being trapped in the patch for weeks and months? The thought threatened to drown me, so I shook it off and returned to the man's final passage. After nano, he'd written glitch, and a new realization drove me to my feet. I'd thought the man had been sent to the patch to keep him from sabotaging the gate. But what if he'd sent himself inside to save us? Was there a glitch in the patch? A way out? Was he trying to save the boy and learn the system so he could destroy it? I took several deep breaths to try and slow my thoughts and make a new plan. I had to find the man. His body might contain more clues for how to survive the patch, and if what I suspected was true, there was so much more than my life and the boy's life at stake. I tucked the notebook safely into the waistband of my jeans, took a final deep breath, and turned until what was left of my intuition chose a direction to head in to begin my search. Before I set off to find answers on the dead man's bones, I scrawled F-U-C-K-Y-O-U in the dirt with my finger in case the narrow gate were, in fact, watching. Once I was satisfied with my love note to my fascist captors, I smiled.
smiled for the first time since I'd entered the patch and took the first hopeful step towards survival. My step faltered midair, however, when a new and monumentally awful thought came crashing down so hard I lost my breath and had to steady myself so I wouldn't fall over from the impact. What if this was all in my mind? What if whatever was in the berries had forced my brain to hallucinate months of agony after I made the fatal mistake of eating one too many? What if I had experienced weeks and weeks of pure torture in my mind? But no more than a few seconds had passed in real life as I stood looking, relaxed and content in a blueberry patch, in a vacation community, in the perfect late July sun. Had they engineered the ability to inflict all of the emotional and psychological implications of punishment without taking up precious time that would slow productivity? Was my escape dependent on my ability to solve the impossible trap that had been set inside of my own mind? A greedy girl, her life unfurled. She goes within, but will she win? by Kay Weaver. For more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at patreon backslash please leave pod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at please leave pod. Our email is please leave pod at gmail.com and our website is please leave pod.com. If you like the story, please take a second to give us a review or rating. It's just a couple of us trying to get this thing off the ground. So your support really helps us. 